Progressive Rugby League. G'day. If you're like me, Jono Duncan, you're part of a subset of rugby league fans that embraces the seemingly incompatible positions that A, as a wondrous achievement of the working class rugby league is a movement to cherish, tenderly cultivate and take very seriously, and B, that rugby league is absurd. An irreconcilable contradiction? I think not. All games are ridiculous at their core, an arbitrary but straightforward objective and a million quirky little rules that make it really hard to reach. What, so I just need to place this ball over that line over there. Yes, but the ball is shaped like a pointy egg. You only get six goes at a time. You have to get past 13 opponents. You have to run forwards but pass backwards. And when you get tackled, you have to play the ball with your foot. But it doesn't really matter except sometimes when it does. And don't put your foot on that line over there. Um, okay. Let's play. I'm far from a connoisseur of sports and rugby league writing, but I really enjoy authors and journalists who can find that sweet spot between earnestness and bemusement. The fact that rugby league exists is an achievement, and it matters to people. That makes it important. And there's something beautiful about a sweeping backline movement that hits its mark. There's something euphoric about achieving a sport's simple objective despite the admittedly ludicrous obstacles. Challenge, collective achievement, majesty, belonging, satisfaction. And then there's a guy that goes to games dressed as a banana. I get the sense Dave Hatfield recognised and revelled in these juxtapositions. As you probably know, Dave passed away in March this year, 2022. Before Dave's passing, I hadn't read much of his work at all. As an Australian of a certain generation, it didn't really come onto my radar, unfortunately. But as this pod has embarked over the last few years on highlighting as much great rugby league writing as we can through our PRL book club series, Dave's name kept coming up in conversations as a stalwart of the genre and an author we simply must read. Well, the intention was always to get there, but certainly with better timing. After the news of Dave's passing filtered through and once the beautiful tributes began to slow, I picked up 13 Winters and 13 Worlds. These two books, which Dave drove, edited and made valuable contributions to, really are about the curious but noble condition of being an avid rugby league fan when objectively it would make much more sense to do something, anything else. And upon getting stuck into these books, I immediately understood why so many had suggested we turn to Dave. His eye for observation, a natural leaning towards self-deprecation, and a writing style that endeared you to him and the quirky characters he came across through his rugby league travels. It made you wish you were there with him through those escapades, seeing what he was seeing and chuckling in their aftermath. But shining through all the humour and light-heartedness was a spirit of love of the game. It mattered to him, it mattered to his community, and so he thought it should matter to the world too. Today we're talking Dave Hadfield and 13 Winters and 13 Worlds with someone who is exponentially more qualified than me to do so and who himself has contributed in his own way to the evolution of British rugby league writing. In fact, before spending 22 years as a journalist at the BBC, he was in the thick of it at the influential Open Rugby magazine, which became Rugby League World. He also became a contributor to both 13 Winters and 13 Worlds and more importantly, was Dave's friend. It's a real pleasure to welcome Trevor Gibbons to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Trevor, hello. Hiya, how are you doing? Yeah, really well, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us and very nice to meet you and chat to you. Yeah, thank you. Now, Trevor, I wonder if we could start by talking about your relationship with Dave. How did the relationship begin and and how did it evolve over the years? Well, I, you said there that I worked for Open Rugby, which was quite true. 
from sort of the uh, late 80s into the late 90s. I was at Open Rugby with Harry Edgar, Mm -hmm. and we weren't just a magazine. We were kind of, or we saw ourselves as a publicity campaign for Rugby League, an organ for development, all sorts of things like that that weren't just about getting out the magazine every month. Mm -hmm. And Dave was often in the office because at that time, he was a very strange beast in that he was actually a national newspaper correspondent on Rugby League. Mm. Now, it's perhaps hard to understand in Australia, but in the UK, Rugby League gets very small coverage outside of certain areas. Mm. And here was Dave, who had managed to get to be Rugby League uh, correspondent of the then Fairly new paper, The Independent. Mm. And so he was almost a, a bit of an object of, oh, you know, here's this guy to me who's a national newspaper correspondent. But of course, as soon as you met Dave, he just smashed all your preconceptions anyway. Mm. He, was, um, he was a very big bloke, big beard. He was just a big man, a big life. And he knew everybody in rugby league and it didn't just mean in england he knew italy he knew people on the west coast of new zealand he knew sydney very well because of course while i'm talking about dave hadfield many people in australia have read dave without actually realizing because he was george dunkley yes. on rugby league week from the old dart or whatever his column was called <laughs> So it used to be a bit confusing to me at first when I was in Australia because people came bounding up to him and talked to him as George. I'm thinking, <laughs> what's going on here? So it's George Dunkley, Dave Hadfield, same guy. And what a big guy and what a great guy he was. Not just because he was he was a fountainhead of rugby league. He was just a really nice unusual, creative, and he lived an interesting life. Mm. Now, Dave was known as as one of Rugby League's preeminent writers. He published a series of books, including 13 Winters and 13 Worlds, uh, was a long-time Rugby League correspondent for The Independent, as you say, uh, presumably did the rounds of the trade rags too. Was there something about Dave's approach to writing or his writing style that stood him apart from his contemporaries, or was it more a matter of him yeah, embracing the rugby league writing form and doing it just no, very well? I think Dave often stood out because he didn't just write in a match report style, which he sometimes did, but even then it was still his own style, his own work. But Dave often looked into the sort of dusty corners of rugby league and found out that where are they now or what are they doing now and all the the strange little byways that we have. And the one thing, Dave had, I I mean, it's not, this is not a unique comparison by me, Mm. but if people who haven't yet read him think of him a little bit as the Bill Bryson of Mm. rugby league, He has that conversational style. And like you were saying about the absurdity of rugby league, he was very quick to pick up 
on some of the quirks of rugby league and the quirks of people playing rugby league. Mm. So it used to make you laugh as much as anything. He had an ability to make you laugh, not at the game, but at the people in it, whilst remaining entirely serious about the game itself. But he never took the game seriously. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. And it comes through in the writing too. You definitely get that sense of someone who who knew both sides of the coin and, and recognised and embraced it. Well, in 13 Winters, Trevor, he writes an essay about a season of Blackpool Boroughs. And just for listeners, after the uh, end of the outro music, we have uh, an excerpt of that essay just for, for people so they understand the kind of writer Dave was. So hopefully people enjoy that. Dream, of course. So, <laughs> Dave played 
for Blackpool Borough, but he never lost his contact with the game and he, he helped and played for an amateur team in the Bolton area as well. So as well as being friends with him, I've played both with him, the 1994 Great Britain Touch Football against the Aussie journalists, right. and against him in amateur rugby league matches with my team that I was uh, organising versus Bolton. Oh, there so you go. I, I've had the great chance to be smashed by uh, Dave Hadfield as well. <laughs> and Trevor, what kind of influence do you think Dave had on his contemporaries as a writer or, or the subsequent generations of rugby league writers? I think it proved or it showed to some people that there was nothing wrong with writing about rugby league but having a comedic edge to it. Yeah. So it probably did increase the amount of people who weren't quite as straight-laced when they wrote about the game. Mm. And I think also he was part of a movement to discover rugby league in some of the strangest and oddest places. Yeah. And perhaps it was that that carried on. You know, there is still, like this podcast and like lots of people mm. on Twitter or wherever, there is still that subgenre of Brooke Blake fan who really wants to know about bits of Papua New Guinea yep. or what happens in upcountry New Zealand or what about the Yugoslav team of 1953. Mm. And Dave was sort of... Um, a bit of a leading light of that in some ways. Yeah, that's right. And, and you could argue someone like Steve Mascord has, has sort of carried the, the torch on for that kind of rugby league train spotter well, type person, yeah. Yeah, as I know uh, Steve as well mm. and have been out with Steve Mascord and with Dave Hadfield at mm. the same time, <laughs> it did kind of produce the alchemy between those two. It did usually produce a strange other universe <laughs> this sort of rugby league train spotting that i happily joined in with yeah was the thing that really opened quite a lot of people's eyes i think to everything and i'd first known steve mascord mm. because he wrote into open rugby as a school kid somewhere in wollongong or and he wanted pen pals in the UK right. at that time. So the first time I knew Steve, he was sort of, I think, still at school as far as I know. <laughs> and of course, I still see Steve to this day and he's still as madcap and as sort of on fire as he always is. Always got three <laughs> ideas going, two pints <laughs> and one shoe. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Now, in terms of your, your comment about Dave's influence, I think that's a, a really interesting point about, you know, giving the permission to write about rugby league with a, a comic eye. I do sense that from the, the limited rugby league writing I've read from the UK over the last few years when doing this podcast compared to <coughs> writing from Australia on rugby league. There's, there's a, probably a lot more writing from Australia on rugby league, but it from my sense, and I haven't read it all, obviously, there's less of a humorous angle to it. And, and it's definitely more the case from my experience uh, with the, the rugby league writing from the UK. So that might be something as part of Dave's legacy. Well, one of the things that I'm sure he did spawn was um, there is a book by 
guys, Tony Hannon over here, who mm. was involved in the magazine 4020. Yeah. Yeah. He's written several books, and he wrote a book about a year in the life of the Batley Rugby League team. Yes, yes. A, you know, a lower division team here, but steep. Right in the middle of the rugby league area in England, yeah. in a place called rather wonderfully the Heavy Woolen area. Yeah, well, and you know, you know, Trevor, we, we did a book club with Tony a couple of years ago on that very well, book, and it's go. absolutely so, brilliant. And, and it's that sort of writing that I think that Dave Hadfield introduced some people yeah. to, really. Mm, and yes. also, just thinking back about the timelines and things, the 13. Winters, which came first, mm. you know, it was back in 1994. It was quite early in the life of serious sports literature in this country, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you realise that's nearly, what, 30 years ago with a shock, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Good grief, where's it all gone? <laughs> but it was relatively early because football, soccer over here, had only really started to do something similar a couple of years earlier. Mm -hmm. So rugby league was quite quick to the story. I mean, it all comes around about how we decided to do 13 winters, really. Yeah, well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about it, Trevor. So, the Thirteen Winters and Thirteen Worlds are similar in that they're collections of essays about supporting rugby league in one way or another. But they differ in that Thirteen Winters is really about embracing the local, with thirteen essays about writers portraying their favourite ever season. Meanwhile, Thirteen Worlds is really about embracing the global, and is really a fun collection of stories about chasing the rugby league dream around the world. A real collective rugby league travel diary what do you remember about the development of those books because while dave was a driving force of 13 winters and edited and contributed heavily to both books you were right amongst it too contributing to both books and according to the introduction you came up with the idea for 13 worlds so what is your memory of that time and and how it all came together well funnily enough it's a bit like rugby league itself where we can go right back to the George Hotel on a certain date and say that's where it started. Yeah. 13 Winters started in the Queen Hotel in Leeds, which was not far from Headingley. And now in the depths of 30 odd years, I can't quite remember whether we're going to a game, more likely from a game <laughs> at Headingley. Yeah. And we stopped in for a couple of pints of then Leeds' finest Tetley Brewery. And just a little bit before that, there had been a book released about Arsenal, the soccer club here, mm. called Fever Pitch course, by Nick yeah. Hornby. Mm. Now, that was kind of a breakthrough book that showed a lot of people who might have looked down on sport mm. that just because it's sport, it isn't necessarily followed by people who can't read, which yep. was a bit of a prevailing idea at the time. Right. So Nick Hornby wrote Fever Pitch, which is about Arsenal in one big year when they go on to win the championship, mm. what's now called the Premier League, in the last game of the season. But it's about more than that. Because it's about his life, his doubts, his girlfriend, all this sort of stuff. And from that book, there were some that were earlier, but that was the famous one. People were 
Mm. And that was, just like 13 Winters, a series of essays by different people edited by Nick Hornby on their favourite soccer team, but picking a year. Mm. I read that, it came out in 1993. I read Fever Pitch, I bought it when it came out. I read my favourite year, and a light just went off, and I thought, bong, somebody has got to do this mm. about rugby league. And if it's going to be somebody, it might as well be Dave and me yeah. and people we know. And so that night in The Queen, we were sat there, and I mentioned this to Dave. I'm not sure he knew about my favourite year. And literally, like many great ideas on the back of a, a beer mat or an envelope, yeah. we started scoping out what would become 13 winters, who would do what. We didn't get the entire cast list there and then, mm. but because Dave already had contacts with publishers and things, he went off, worked out who was going to do it, and of course it included myself, it included Harry Edgar from Open Rugby, lots of the other journalists, two uh, great essays by Dave, because he said, well, I'm in charge of it, I can pick myself twice. <laughs> And we deliberately based it on my favourite year, but obviously used the idea of 13, and off we went. Yeah, right. And as I mentioned, and as you say, you contributed to both 13 Winters and 13 Worlds. Your essay in 13 Winters is called Alf, George, Mick and Keith, about your beloved Hull FC's 1975-1976 season and its intersection with the birth of punk. Uh, it's a lovely little essay uh, written at a time when Hull FC were actually in the second division while their cross-down rivals Rovers were sitting pretty in the top flight. You wrote that piece almost 20 years after that season and now we sit here 25 years or so further on. I'm curious to know, Trevor, if that season, that time still resonates with you as it did back then. It does. Yeah. That, I think as I write in that piece, you know, everything is black and white at that time. Of course, I played both on the fact that I was looking back 20 years and the mighty black and white. Yeah. And I was 15, 16 that season. So it was my first really sort of, although I'd watched Hull and went to a final in 1969 with them, so I've been watching them for years. Mm. It was one of my glory days when this little team from the second division got it together and got to a final which in the end they didn't win but it, you know when everybody's 15 16 music is coming in I started going to away games I remember that in the chapter I talk about going because it's the John Player Cup trophy which yeah. no longer exists and our semi-final of that was at Salford against a then mighty Salford with some greats of the game. And we were in the second division. Salford had just been champions, I think, that year or the year before, and we beat them. Mm. And I went to that, and that's one of my first memories of a big away game that I went to, you know, when I was sort of 16. So it really does resonate with me. Yeah. And of all those names... You know, Alf is Alf Macklin, Keith is Keith Boxall of Hull FC. Neither of those will mean a lot to people outside of Hull or certainly England. But only the other day, I 
to a rugby league lunch in Hull in honour of the three Kiwis that had come back. So mm. we had Fred Arkoy, we had Gary Kemble and we had Dane O'Hara. And there was a very sort of emotional lunch. And yet in the crowd there, there's various ex-players around, was Keith Boxall, my hero from 1975. So I got the chance wow. to have a chat with him, tell him and reminisce. And I was like, you know, I know the, uh, the, the sort of modern way of saying fanboy, fangirly, <laughs> but I was <laughs> still smitten. And I'm a man of 62 now. It's not <laughs> a good look, is it really? When you look around, like, oh, wow, look, look. Not many people know, but I do. And so, yeah, it's still got a grip of me as the rugby league and that season. And so has the music. I still have a lot of interesting music. I still like a lot of alternative, punky, folky, traditional music. Mm -hmm. And that has, in my little mind world anyway, that has always put me out as sort of different as alternative or independent. It's a bit like rugby league. I've always seen the two almost hand in hand. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I think I see what you mean. Now... Trevor, I wonder if you can give us a sense, especially those of us not in the UK, about the relationship between Hull FC and Hull Kingston Rovers. That the first line you write in your essay, I think, is a is a really good start to the essay. There is an added spice to life in a two team town. Can you give us a sense of what it's like? <laughs> well, uh, it's grand. I mean, it is absolutely the spice of life in Hull. Yeah, because it's them. And us. Mm. And the great thing about Hull is there is a geographical divide. Hull is a city on an estuary, so it doesn't have a southern bit, if you like, because it's on the estuary. Mm. So it's a half, a circle, really. And right through more or less the middle of Hull goes a smaller river called the River Hull. Mm-hmm. That's why the full posh Sunday name of the town is Kingston-upon-Hull, because see. the king granted a charter many years ago, so we became Kingstown-upon-Hull. But, of course, it's shortened to Hull most times. Mm-hmm. So to the west of that is now the land of the black and white, Hull FC, the Boulevard, the MKM Stadium, mm-hmm. the Fish Docks, and to the east, is the the dark side, as we call it, is the land of the red and whites, Craven Park, New Craven Park, and the Dockers and the Ferry Port. So there's a neat sort of divide down the middle. And although they are, as we call them in home, mixed families now, where some people have intermarried, yeah. it still depends very much on where you live, or perhaps where your mum and dad live, yeah. as to which side you support. That's interesting. You know, I was thinking as I was contemplating that first line of your essay, there is something different about a two-team town as opposed to, of course, a one-team town, but also as opposed to a three-team town or a four or a five or an eight-team town in Sydney's case. Because in a two-team town, a bit like a a two-party political system, you only have one place to channel all your hatred towards, whereas if you're in a three or four or five-team town, it's diluted. So it must be extra passionate when you're in a two-team town. I think it is. And, you know, some of the dark 
derby days, especially when Rovers come to our stadium, which holds 25,000 people, mm. and it is packed or near full, I, I think it's quite hard sometimes for the Australian fan to appreciate the noise and the tribal a mm. tribal roar mm. that comes out of English towns, but especially on Derby Day, you mm. know, it is very loud, very tingly, slightly uh, rowdy. Mm-hmm. One or two songs that you wouldn't sing in front of your mother, and everybody gets on and belts each other on the pitch, shouts rude things to each other off the pitch, and has a really good rugby league day. Fantastic. And, and could you, for instance, on a derby day, go to a, a pub in East Hull with a Hull FC jersey on? Is the relationship at a level where you can still get along at that level or is it, you know, stay away from each yeah, other? Yeah, yeah? Most, yeah, most of the time you can. I mean, at the odd game, there might be a fracas between one or two beard up young people from both sides. Yeah. But in general, you can lob up at a pub with the opposite jersey on and everything will be fine and that is part of the fun because whilst we are choosing between dislike or hate Mm. uh, let's say dislike to be polite while we dislike rovers and they dislike us as well without them rugby league in hull would be slightly different because although there is a soccer team in hull as well and many people, if you meet them from Hull, your first question to them might be, are you black and white or red and white? Mm. And people know what you mean. And they might not go to every game, but people in Hull know which side of that divide they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting, really. Yeah. But then, of course, you know our rugby league has a lot of strange quirks. I do, yeah. One of the one of the strangest is this passion is built entirely on they're from over there, the other side of the river, the dirty so-and-so's. <laughs> However, back in 1895, just before the first uh, Northern Union season, Hull FC pushed Rovers out of the boulevard. So Rovers were at one point playing in the West and Hull played in the East. But... To most people, 1895 is quite a long time ago. <laughs> so we had more money. We've always been the bigger, better club, obviously. Um, if anybody wants to hear a good ramble about this, me and my pal Tony Collins, the rugby league historian and podcast maker, mm-hmm. is a Rovers fan. And we did an entire podcast between me and Tony Collins. Yeah. <laughs> talking about life in Hull through Rugby League. Beautiful. Yeah, I did listen to that, Trevor. I highly recommend it, yep. (laughs) Now, Trevor, as I mentioned, 13 Worlds is a rollicking ride around the Rugby League world and beyond. And I particularly appreciated the essays from the Beyond category. They kind of sit very humorously and kind of poignantly at the intersection between hope and resignation. Now, you've got Dave's pieces from Germany, the Soviet Union, Venice, your piece on the quote-unquote very flat Netherlands, Harry Edgar's reflections on what made Milwaukee infamous, just to name a few. But there's one essay that really stuck out for me, another one written by Dave called Backy to the Future, about trying to get rugby league going in post-apartheid South Africa. Now, Backy, I think, is a 
South African truck, I believe. Now, I bring yeah, this up. Yeah, uh, backing is what you call a ute. Yes, gotcha. Thank you. Now, I bring this up because, A, it's a fantastic story, but also because you feature in it. You were there on that trip. Uh, what are your reflections on that journey with Dave on the back of a pickup truck to places like Soweto and Alexandra? Do you remember much about what it felt like to be in such a place after such an historic political shift? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was probably one of the best trips of our lives, I think. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Me and Dave hatched this madcap plan. Talking of madcap, there was a mad witness rugby fan in Johannesburg called Dave Southern. Mm. I think he's back in the UK now. And Dave was working night and day, sort of unofficially getting rugby league going amongst school kids and people and things. We'd heard about him at Open Rugby and me and Dave thought, well, where else would you go for a little bit of a break other than South African townships trying to help rugby league? Yeah. So off we went and it was at an historical juncture because we went just after Nelson Mandela had been released Mm. but before the actual elections that confirmed the AFD. So we wouldn't have gone before he'd been released, Mm. but he was released and we sorted it out and we shot off. So we went to a place that was both in celebration, but also kind of in torment because there was a lot of factional violence going on that was on the news and going on while we were there. And a lot of the... um, South African population got to work or got to where they wanted to be by going on little minibuses. Mm-hmm. And these minibuses, by the standard of our timetable, seemed a bit hit and miss. They sat somewhere with a sign in the window till they were full and then they went. And if you were walking along the side of the road and you saw it, you could just put your hand out, it stopped, you got on. Right. And at that time, one of the favourite tactics was gunmen would stop these buses, it's not at all funny, it's awful, Mm. and would ask people, were they ANC or were they sort of Zulu? So that is a desperate choice because you don't really know what side the gunmen are on. And at times they were splitting up the group or wiping out busloads of people while we were there. Well, I haven't got it in front of me, but in my diary, I kept a list of the number of people I saw mentioned in the newspaper had been shot. And I think in the couple of weeks we were there, it ran to 170 or something. Mm. So it was an interesting time. But deep in the heart of Soweto was this white guy from Witness. And so, of course, he picked us up from the airport. Mm -hmm. And... Me and Dave got in the backy, the youth. Dave got in the front, because I wouldn't have argued with him, with Dave. So there's Dave Hadfield and Dave Sutton in the front. I sat in the back. <laughs> and there was a lot of rugby balls in the back. And I laid back on that. The African sun, bit of jet lag, you know, tiredness more than jet lag. Everything was lovely. And we drove off to uh, Soweto and under... A hot African sky, I fell asleep. And then I remember looking vaguely and thinking, oh, I think we're getting nearer the township. But I was asleep, really. And suddenly, a guy jumped on the back 
of this baccy with a massive pair of shears in his hand. And I came to at the jolt and kind of thought, oh my God, we're, we're being carnapped or something. What the hell? And this guy leant forward and said, hello, how do you do? I'm Gordon. And it turns out Gordon was one of the guys helping the kids in Soweto. He was a teacher, but he had a sideline in gardening, which is why he had the massive pair of shears with him. (laughs) So you can imagine my life flashed between my eyes, and I suddenly thought, ah, hello, Gordon, and everything was all right. (laughs) But it was quite a shock. Yeah, and and that little story is is kind of symbolic, it seems, from reading the essay, of your experience there in that, as you said, there were lots of news stories about, you know, all sorts of things going on, but it seemed like your experience, your personal experience was quite uplifting and your experience with the townships were very different. We uh, experienced nothing but help and pleasure and joy Mm. in the townships. And that is why it was such an uplifting experience. And what was amazing, on a night, we might well go and stay with Dave, who lived in, and you've got to talk about it in these terms, in that time, Mm. a a white neighbourhood. So we'd go there, and we might meet people who didn't really know what we were doing, who were convinced that if you went into a township, it would be about five minutes before you were attacked. Mm. And here we were, spending hours in there. Mm. Admittedly, Dave knew the right people, and they were dangerous places, or slightly lawless to some extent. Mm. But we just found the people who wanted to learn about rugby league, the teachers, and the kids who came along to our impromptu classes, they were just absolutely amazing, given what they'd uh, gone through. Mm. It was an experience like no other. And that chapter in the book details you know some of the great training sessions that we had Mm. one of them we went to i think it was soweto and the organizers that we met said oh bad news we were going to a load of teachers were going to bring the kids from different schools to this one football pitch but unfortunately today the teachers are on strike and we thought all right well there won't be anybody coming then but lots of the teachers came voluntarily and we just stood there and kids just walked past from school and we waved a rugby ball at them. Mm. They saw others playing and they just came over and we had this massive impromptu rugby league training session. I was a qualified coach then. Dave wasn't and sort of, he writes about how he took the toddlers on. Mm. But the kids just from toddling up to sort of teenage just came from everywhere they listened they stood in lines and they tried to pick up the rudiments it was it was humbling if Mm. if nothing else Mm. plus when we went to alexandria another township what you had in the townships there were quite a lot of hostels that had kind of migrant workers who would often come from outside of johannesburg in this case um up near Durban and they would be predominantly sort of Zulus so they would live in these little hostels and there could be some friction with the locals Mm -hmm. who were mainly sort of non-Zulu and ANC supporters and one day we get to Alexandria and we're having a session on a football pitch when suddenly 
a lot of little kids dressed up in Zulu gear came on, used half the pitch and started, the, the elders came over and said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to use just half the pitch mm. because we want to do a Zulu dancing session for the kids. Mm. So I have to say that is the first time I've done rugby league coaching in one half of the pitch, <laughs> where in the other half, young kids are being taught the rudiments of doing a Zulu dance. You can't <laughs> beat those sort of things. Yeah, well, that's quite an experience and it's a, a great little essay. Now, we've spoken a bit, Trevor, about 13 Winters and, and 13 Worlds. How do you reflect on those two books 25 years on? Well, first of all, even in the very title of the first book, 13 Winters, hmm. it came right before the switch to summer rugby. Hmm. So, in a sense, it is the old rugby league in this country, captured in Aspen because we don't play in winters anymore. Mm. There aren't stories of as much mud, although we still get plenty of rain and mud as well. Mm. So it, it is a bit of a historical document in some ways, because it is before the advent of Super League. Mm. But in many respects, it still documents the love of rugby league in disparate communities throughout the UK. Mm. So mm. it's still absolutely relevant, but at the same time is a little bit of a history piece. 13 Winters was the next, and it was obvious, uh, 13 Worlds, I do mm. apologise, was the next, and it was obvious to us because that mid-90s, late-90s period was a burst of expansion. There were people in then Soviet Union playing it. There mm. were people in Holland starting to play in Germany and indeed in the UK in different parts. And it seemed to us like we're on the verge of a bit of an expansion, albeit mm. possibly at ground level. Now, of course, in some ways, that expansion has slightly petered out in some of the areas we covered. But at the same time now, you know, you look back from now and you think, well, it might not be big, but there are people playing rugby league in Ghana. Mm. Look at the progress in Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. There is some sort of effort here, there and everywhere of all different standards. But maybe it's taken this long some of it to actually start. Mm. And the great thing about the essays in 13 Worlds is that there is a thread between the various characters who take up the cause in the various countries, the various outposts of rugby league, and there is a, a commonality between them. They're, they're, a, bit, they're a bit out there. They're, they're, they're dreamers, but they, they give it a crack. And I think that is the thing about rugby league. It goes back to the idea is a rebel sport in some ways mm. and it seems to attract kind of rebels and dreamers mm. now that is is a good thing but also sometimes wouldn't it be nice if it attracted sort of really organized businesses who were going to do this for some reason but that doesn't happen it attracts dreamers it, it you know because why would you i mean it might be slightly different in Australia, but in this country, if you're abroad, why would you start mm. 
a fairly unknown sport that has a slightly different version of it and it's probably better known. Why would you start the smallest? It's definitely not <laughs> football. That's massive. Yeah. But there's, in many places, two types of rugby. Rugby and people go, I know, I'll start the really small one that has battled everywhere it's been because that will be more fun. And that's why they're dreamers because if they weren't, they'd go off and play soccer or something, you know. Yeah. Now, Trevor, <laughs> we are fast running out of time, but we, we've reflected on Dave today, mainly through his writings within 13 Winters and 13 Worlds, which, as we've kind of discussed, gives us uh, an insight into Dave the person and also his thoughts on the game at that time. Do you know how he felt about the game in, in more recent times? He was clearly a, a rugby league lover, a dreamer, you could say, and his support for promoting the game off in far-off lands was, was kind of legendary. How, how did he feel about the direction of the game towards the end of his life? I don't think his support for rugby league ever wavered. Hmm. And he used to know and like individually a lot of rugby league administrators or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think for many years, what I think he used to say, what he would love to have done is got some of them together and banged their heads together. <laughs> His love never waned. Mm -hmm. He might have gone to the odd game and thought, well, I don't know, that wasn't great. Mm -hmm. But the one thing he didn't do was, and I try not to, was to sit there and go, well, in my day, or back in 94, uh. he took the game as it was, but he used to be frustrated, as I'm sure most of us are, sometimes by decisions made by people at the top, but that didn't change his ability to go and walk through England and find when he wrote Up and Under, mm. people from all sorts of rugby league walks of life, he could still find fun in it. Yeah. And I think that, that was a good thing. Mm. You know, don't get... If, if ever you get a bit depressed with rugby league, if, if the NRL mm. are trying to be daft or Super League does something you don't like, go and watch your amateur team, go and watch country football, go and do this, go and help kids. Mm. Go somewhere else. There's always an aspect of rugby league that you can go and do. Yeah, no, well said. One of the reasons that I think Dave Hadfield had such an impression was obviously he was a very clever man. He was a very funny man. But he had what we used to call a hinterland. He liked rugby league to the max, but he had other interests. Mm -hmm. He liked beer. Yep. That's where me and him bonded so much in the love of British real ale. Right. Nice, nice warm to your minds, real ale. <laughs> and he also, he liked folk music and traditional music. Mm -hmm. And he liked walking. So he did other things as well. He, he was very big on his music. In fact, one of the favourite books that Dave wrote is called All the Wrong Notes, and he subtitled it An Adventure in Unpopular Music. <laughs> and it's about his experiences in the music scene and his love of alternative and folk music. And I think it's, it's having a wide experience like that. Too many people in rugby league have 
only got worked up or watched rugby league mm-hmm. and they can't pull themselves out of it, especially in the UK. They sometimes need to just pull themselves back a bit and think, hang on, we're perhaps not as big as we think we are or we're not doing this right. Mm. Why should everything be rugby league Dave Hadfield never did that mm. because he had a different life. He liked his music, he liked his beer, he liked his walking. And the last thing I have to say is I have never seen anybody with the ability to dictate perfect copy off the top of his head than Dave. Right. You know, somebody, I, I was a writer for the BBC for 22 years and I'd sometimes sit there a bit while it came. <laughs> I remember once being, funnily enough, in another pub after a game, I met up with Dave. I thought he'd finished all his work and we sort of got to pints and sat down at the table, took a first sip and said, oh, yeah, that's nice. And he said, just a minute, hang on. And he took out his phone and he took out a little notebook, looked a couple of times at his notebook, phoned the desk where a coffee taker was taking it down. This is before like yeah. we had little computers and things. And he then just dictated word perfect to the right size, match copy over the phone in a pub to the copy taker. So to say, right, finishes, that should be exactly, yeah, happy with that, good, thank you. Wow. Put his phone shut and we went on with the beer. <laughs> it, it kind of astounded me <laughs> and that that was what he could do after being a journalist yeah. and a lover of journalism and literature all his life. Yeah, what a pro. And so many lessons through the life of, of Dave Hadfield. Well, Trevor, we are out of time, unfortunately, but thank you so much for, for taking the time to help us out and help us reflect on the writing and the legacy of, of Dave Hadfield, a, a life clearly well-lived and clearly a man with many friends and admirers from all over the rugby league world. So, Trevor Gibbons, thank you so much for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. And thanks and all power to rugby league. Progressive Rugby League. Well, there you have it. 13 Winters and 13 Worlds. Two books really worth your while, I reckon. And Trevor Gibbons, a really lovely man. Thanks, Trevor. Hey, look, stick around after the outro music for an excerpt of Dave's writing with permission from the fabulous publishing house Scratching Shed. Cheers to the great Phil Kaplan. A little bonus, if you will. But if you don't have time, feel free to call it now. Thanks again, ladies and gentlemen. Until we next meet somewhere on the hope side of its intersection with resignation, Rugby League Hobby, and see ya.
Alrighty, so Dave's essay from 13 Winters, a tangerine machine about his lowly Blackpool borough making an unlikely run towards promotion, is a real beauty. Here's an excerpt that I really enjoyed and I think kind of captures his style quite nicely. Here he's talking about when Albert Fernley, a rugged Yorkshire forward who played in the 1950s, joined the club to try drag them out of their torpor. And he started with the signing of one Bakari Diabra. Blackpool Borough were not unused to men of rugby league pedigree around the place. Brian Bevan and Billy Boston had, after all, ended their playing days there. Although I can't pretend the last resort saw the best of them. But having a big wheel like Albert steering the ship was something new. As a player, he had been part of the Halifax pack of the 1950s, which he now proudly claims to have been the dirtiest ever. As manager, not merely coach, of Bradford Northern, he had directed their revival in the early 1970s. He was still, good grief, national coach. He was on the face of it an extraordinary capture for a club like Blackpool. Soon after his arrival, he and I went on a prolonged drinking session at a seafront pub and he convinced me that, in some mysterious way, we were going to get Blackpool Borough into the first division. The details weren't exactly explicit. Albert always asked Blackpool Barman is it strong before committing himself to any particular beverage and what we were drinking that day certainly was. But the approximate manner in which it was meant to work was this. He was to provide me with vast quantities of exciting stories with which to make my fame and fortune. I was to make sure all the assorted fact, fiction and bullshit got headline treatment in the West Lanks Evening Gazette and beyond. And we would thus make the borough A popular and B successful. With the Irish Sea thundering towards us in foaming waves from one direction and the extra strong lager doing much the same from the other, it all seemed perfectly feasible. Of course, he would need a few players. As befits a man of national stature, Albert spread his net wide, and his first signing was his most inspired and crucial. Bakari Diabra had been a bright young prospect at Bradford, albeit with unusual antecedents. His mum was from Hull, his dad was from Dakar in Senegal, and Buck had been born in Bordeaux. Albert had first signed him as a northern colt from a youth club on Humberside, and he had clearly been a favourite protégé. You only had to see him with a rugby ball in his hands to understand why. You will have heard of players who could almost make the ball talk. There was no almost with Diabra. I'll swear that at one session, the mitre multiplex, if that's the ball we were playing with in those days, piped up and pleaded, for God's sake, give it a rest, Buck. He could not only thread a needle with a pass, he could embroider one of those Victorian samplers with home sweet home and nail it above a fireplace. Before a match, he would sit around casually spinning the ball on the index finger of one hand, roll it down one arm, round the back of his neck, and along the other arm, finally spinning it with equal nonchalance on the other index finger. It wasn't a case of showing off either. He was merely getting to know an old friend once more. The way in which you and I might grab the ball in two fists, throw it against a changing room wall, and with luck, catch it. I still have no doubts about it. Back Diabra had, by a distance, the best hands I'd ever seen in a rugby player. The knees, regrettably, were something else entirely. When you saw them, devoid of their layers of strapping and protection, it was all too obvious why a lot of his fancy handling routines were performed sitting down. They were only recognisable as knees because they happened to be halfway up his legs. There was nothing that was easily identifiable as a kneecap. Indeed, it seemed that everything that could be removed had been removed. It had not been a job for surgeons, it had been one for the house clearance specialists. I could go on, ladies and gentlemen, but I think I'll leave it there. Thanks again, Phil, for the approval for this excerpt. Thanks again to Trevor for the chat. And thanks to you folks. See ya.